Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 12th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A six-year-old lawsuit against California's State Compensation Insurance Fund, EK Health Services, their utilization review vendor, and over a dozen utilization review physicians has now been resolved. The case was filed by Electronic Waveform Lab Incorporated, the maker of the H-Wave, a physician-prescribed drug-free medical device that helps claimants with chronic pain. Electronic Waveform Lab filed a lawsuit in 2011 against EK Health and 11 utilization review physicians alleging improper conduct in denying the H-Wave electrotherapy device in utilization review. The lawsuit was amended to add the State Compensation Insurance Fund and three additional utilization review physicians as parties, and the case proceeded in federal court with a third amended complaint. The case alleged a RICO violation accusing the groups of conspiring to deny physician treatment requests for the FDA-cleared H-Wave device. H-Wave claimed that the state fund conspired with their utilization review vendor and their independent contractor physicians to deny all H-Wave requests, no matter what the medical necessity issues were. The parties reached a confidential financial settlement in October 2017. State Fund, EK Health, and EK Health's utilization review physicians will now recognize that home H-Wave is a drug-free treatment option, medically necessary in appropriate circumstances, and may be approved for use pursuant to current evidence-based medicine and prevailing guidelines. Authorization requests that prescribe home H-Wave should be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, focusing on the needs of the injured patient. This could be perceived as a big win for medical device makers, which deal with denials from claims adjusters on a daily basis. With today's widespread focus on the national opioid epidemic, this case is encouraging for patients and their physicians who are demanding alternative treatments for chronic pain. More than 200,000 people have been prescribed H-Wave over the last 35 years. The Court of Appeal ruled that a building owner was not responsible for the death of a window washer despite an unsafe roof harness. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Delgadillo versus Television Center Incorporated. Television Center Incorporated owns a three-story commercial building in Hollywood. In 2011, the company contracted with Chamberlain Business Services, who was a licensed contractor, to wash the building's windows. Salvador Franco worked as a supervisor and window cleaner for Chamberlain. Chamberlain and its employees made all decisions about how the window washing would be accomplished. The window washing equipment used on the job was owned, inspected, and maintained by Chamberlain as well. It was Chamberlain's policy that two connectors were required when rappelling off a building one primary line, and one safety line. On the first day of this contract, Salvador Franco attached his line to only a single connector, which was an angle iron bracket supporting the air conditioning unit on the roof, which was attached to a small piece of wood, 
and it was not an acceptable anchor point. The bracket failed and Mr. Franco fell to his death. His family received workers' compensation benefits following the incident. But they also sued the building owner for negligence, alleging that the decedent was fatally injured because the owner failed to install structural roof anchors in violation of the Labor Code and the California Code of Regulations. The owner moved for a summary judgment contending that plaintiff's suit was barred by the Privet Doctrine. The trial court agreed and granted summary judgment for the building owner. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished case of Delgadillo versus the Television Center Incorporated. The Prevet Doctrine holds that when a property owner hires an independent contractor, the property owner is not liable for injuries sustained by the contractor's employees unless the owner's affirmative conduct contributed to the injuries. The undisputed evidence in this case was that the building owner did not direct how the window washing should be done, nor otherwise interfere with the means or methods of accomplishing the work. Accordingly, a summary judgment was properly granted. Three American Indian tribes in South Dakota have sued the top opioid manufacturers and distributors, accusing them of concealing and minimizing the addiction risk in tribal communities that have been devastated by opioid drugs. The Rosebud Sioux Tribe, the Flando Santee Sioux Tribe, and the Sisseton Wapiton Oyote sued 24 manufacturers and distributors. But the attorneys allege the opioid epidemic has wreaked havoc on all of South Dakota's nine tribes. The 106-page legal complaint alleges the opioid industry failed to comply with federal prescription drug laws. The suit accuses the companies of violating federal racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization laws, it's known as RICO laws, deceptive trade practices, and fraudulent and negligent conduct. Hundreds of cities, states, and counties have filed lawsuits against opioid drug manufacturers and distributors, among them seven counties in West Virginia, which has the highest prescription drug overdose rate in the nation. In April, the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma became the first tribe to do so. Walmart, CVS, and the other companies that were sued went to a federal judge in Oklahoma in June and argued that Cherokee tribal courts do not have jurisdiction over them. The judge has not ruled on whether the case will remain in tribal court or be transferred to the U.S. District Court. Maryland's Attorney General has filed a lawsuit seeking to enforce a subpoena the state sent incest therapeutics, incest therapeutics as part of a probe into allegations the drug maker deceptively marketed a fentanyl-based cancer pain medicine. The Attorney General said his state had been investigating incest since 2016 amid allegations that incest had marketed its product Subsys to not just patients with severe cancer pain, but for other conditions. The Attorney General said the INSIS resistance to turning over all of the documents the state court sought was troubling given its claims that its conduct had changed. He claimed that usually the reason people fight disclosures is that they do not want to 
the people seeking disclosures to know what they've been up to. Incest has found itself at the center of several lawsuits and investigations focused on the drug sepsis and under-the-tongue spray intended for cancer patients that contains fentanyl, a synthetic opioid. Federal prosecutors in Boston have accused seven former executives and managers at INSYS, including billionaire founder John Kapoor, of participating in a scheme to bribe doctors to prescribe the drug and to defraud insurers. INSYS has said it may have to pay a minimum of $150 million as part of a settlement with the U.S. Justice Department. It already agreed to pay $9.45 million in settlements with four state attorneys general and faces lawsuits by five others. And now our crime report. A whistleblower is a person who exposes any kind of information or activity that is deemed illegal, unethical, or not correct within an organization that is either private or public. In the United States, both state and federal statutes have been put in place to protect whistleblowers from retaliation. The False Claims Act is the federal government's primary whistleblower litigation tool. The law includes a key TOM provision that allows people who are not affiliated with the government to file actions on behalf of the government. Whistleblowers who bring key TOM suits are required to file their cases under seal. The Department of Justice likes it that way because it may pursue its investigation in a manner that does not tip off the target of the investigation. California has a similar False Claims Act with key Tom provisions. Also under the California law, the whistleblower's lawsuit is filed under seal to permit the California Attorney General or local prosecuting authorities to investigate and, if warranted, intervene in the action. But attorney Jeffrey Workin, a formal high-stakes corporate fraud prosecutor with the Department of Justice, had secretly stockpiled sealed lawsuits brought by whistleblowers. His plan was to sell copies of the suits to the very targets of the pending government investigations and his services as an attorney to defend them. Workin carried out his plan for months right up until the day an FBI agent arrested him in a California hotel lobby last year. On that day, Wirtkin believed he was meeting at a Cupertino hotel with a company with whom he would exchange the sealed whistleblower complaint for a duffel bag filled with $310,000. In truth, Wirtkin was meeting with an undercover employee of the FBI. Wirtkin recently pleaded guilty to two counts of obstruction of justice and one count of transportation of stolen property. He admitted that during the last month of his employment as a trial attorney with the Department of Justice, he began secretly reviewing and collecting sealed key Tom complaints that were not assigned to him. And he admitted that after he left the Department of Justice, he used the stolen information to improperly solicit clients that were the subject of the sealed complaints. He is scheduled to be sentenced on March 14 by federal judge Maxine Chesney. The Ventura County Interagency Pharmaceutical Crimes Unit is a task force comprised of members from the Ventura County Sheriff's Office, Simi Valley Police Department, 
the District Attorney's Office, Bureau of Investigation, and the California Highway Patrol. The primary mission of the task force is combating the transfer of legal prescription medication to the illegal market. The task force also works to identify and stop new trends of abuse among the younger population and investigates overdose deaths due to both prescription medication and illicit drug use. The unit began an investigation in November when authorities received a tip from a doctor who had been visited by 49-year-old Jennifer Williams of Calabasas who was seeking a prescription for controlled substances. The doctor later looked her up and her prescription history in a database and found she had visited multiple physicians throughout Southern California in an attempt to acquire these prescriptions. Investigators later determined that Williams had visited 80 doctors from Orange County to Santa Barbara County within the past year. She obtained 1,100 doses of lorazepam and 3,600 doses of the prescription painkillers oxycodone and hydrocodone. Detectives then arrested Williams outside an urgent care facility in Thousand Oaks on suspicion of obtaining a controlled substance by fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. Williams pleaded not guilty to the 11 counts filed by the Ventura County District Attorney. More non-medical provider companies are finding themselves ensnared in healthcare fraud lawsuits and paying out multi-million dollar settlements. A recent settlement between the Department of Justice and a pediatric dental chain known as Cool Smiles for $23.9 million illustrates this trend. This case also involved the dental chain's dental management company, Benevis, a non-provider entity that also facilitates the purchase and sale of dental clinics. The DOJ alleged that Cool Smiles used a combination of bonus and disciplinary actions to push dentists to perform more procedures and obtain additional reimbursements, while ignoring concerns from its dentists about overutilization of treatments. Now, applying pressure or influence on affiliates to hit quotas and increase revenue is uncontroversial in many business settings, but applying pressure on an affiliated medical provider to hit quotas or bill for certain procedures can run afoul of the federal and state law, even if the non-provider entity is not the company submitting the bills. However, some recent court decisions have cast some allegations of medical unnecessary care as simply differences of medical opinion. One federal trial court said allegations of medical necessity, hospice claims to defend medically unessentially, medical essentially amounted to difference in opinion and medical judgment between defendant Ascara's clinicians and the government's expert witnesses. The DOG appealed the Ascara decision and is awaiting a ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Defendants facing medical necessity allegations increasingly will couch these battles as those of the battle of experts' cases. These are the types of court fights the DOJ would rather avoid, particularly because the risk of bad case law is high. In this case, Benevis took that exact approach in a settlement concerning its case.
Benefis characterized the substance of the allegations as professional disagreements between qualified dentists in determining the appropriate level and cost of the care. Benefis said it was disappointed that reasonable disagreement between dentists can become a False Claims Act case. And in regulatory news, the White House, Office of Management and Budget Director, and the newly confirmed Health and Human Services Secretary mapped out how the White House plans to make good on the President's commitment to lower drug prices. The administration is targeting a number of federal agencies like the FDA and federal policies like Medicaid to accomplish this objective. The administration will ask Congress to clarify the definition of generic drugs to avoid misclassifications that lead to exorbitant waste and provide potential loopholes for manufacturers to game the system. The goal is to ensure that generic and branded drugs properly paid on the Medicare rebate program. The HHS Office of Inspector General found that drug manufacturers likely misclassified 3% of the drugs in the Medicaid rebate program in 2016, and that misclassifications cost Medicaid more than $1 billion between 2012 and 2016. The White House also wants Congress to give HHS the authority to allow a small group of states to see if they are able to negotiate with manufacturers and get a better deal than the federal government is currently able to negotiate. The administration is also trying to give Part D providers greater flexibility on how they provide benefits to seniors, such as making generic medications completely free to Part D seniors. Another of the the key areas of focus will be on ending the gaming of the FDA's generic drug approval process. After the FDA grants a manufacturer a 180-day exclusivity period for a generic drug, it cannot approve subsequently submitted applications until that period has expired. In other words, some argue that the rule bars competing generic drugs from entering the market. Getting rid of this ruling will help spark more market competition, which could help drive down drug prices. Understanding Medicare set-aside trends and the CMS review process can assist workers' compensation carriers and administrators identify cost drivers. And a new 2018 research update that the NCCI conducted on the MSAs is based on data from approximately 11,500 MSAs submitted to CMS between September 2009 and December 2015. It found that the CMS processing times have declined since 2012 and more recently hit their lowest level since 2010. In 2015, the average MSA processing time was about 70 days, which is the lowest average processing time between 2010 and 2015. Estimated future drug costs are the main reason for CMS requiring increases of MSA submitted amounts. Prescription drug shares typically increase as the MSA gets larger. At and most MSAs are for claimants who are Medicare eligible at the time of settlement. 
About 64% of claimants are eligible for Medicare, not because of age, but because they have been on Social Security disability for at least two years. Another 29% of claimants are eligible due to age, and about 7% are likely to become eligible within 30 months. The largest percentage of MSA submissions occur four years after the work-related accident. Submissions gradually decrease after that, but it is not uncommon to have a submission 20 or 25 years after an accident. Overall, MSAs represent more than 40% of total submitted workers' compensation settlement costs. More than half of the MSA submissions involve an attorney, and about 46% do not. The involvement of outside legal counsel does not vary much based on whether the total submitted settlement amount is large or small. And in medical news, U.S. government researchers found that male rats exposed to very high levels of the kind of radiation emitted by cell phones developed tumors in the tissues around their hearts. Female rats and mice exposed in the same way did not develop tumors. The findings add to years of research meant to help settle the debate over whether cell phone radiation is harmful, an issue that will soon come up in continuous trauma workers' compensation claims. Although intriguing, scientists and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration said the findings cannot be extrapolated to humans. The animal studies were meant to test extreme exposures to cell phone radiation, far less than current safety limits on cell phones these days. However, the two-year, the two 10-year, $25 million studies do raise new questions about exposure to the ubiquitous devices and are bound to create a lot of concern. Unlike ionizing radiation such as that from gamma rays, radon, and x-rays, radiofrequency devices such as cell phones and microwaves admit emit radiofrequency energy, a form of non-ionizing radiation. The concern with this type of radiation is that it produces energy in the form of heat and frequent exposure against the skin could alter brain cell activity, according to some studies. Cell phone radiation quickly dissipates, so the risk, if any, would be to areas of the body in close proximity to the device emitting the radiation. These findings are intended to help inform the design of future cell phone technologies. The head of the FDA's radiological health division said there's not enough evidence to say cell phone use poses health risks to people. Even with frequent daily use by the vast majority of adults, researchers have not seen an increase in events like brain tumors. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on Amazon to add that skill. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.